The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audiobook Club for February 2018. I'm Laura Miller, Slate's books and culture columnist, and I'm your guest host holding down the book club fort. Today, I'm joined by Slate's Jacob Brogan. Hello. And by Charlie Jane Anders, a writer and commenter, the author of the Nebula Award-winning and Locus Award-winning novel, All the Birds in the Sky. Charlie Jane. Hi. So good to be here. Yes, we're, we're all big fans of All the Birds in the Sky here. Um, okay, so today we will not be discussing All the Birds in the Sky, but maybe at some future date we will. Um, today we'll be discussing Ursula K. Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness, uh, a novel about an emissary to an alien world trying to make connection with the inhabitants. This is a classic science fiction novel. Um, it was published in 1969, and it really revolutionized the genre. It was really the first classic feminist science fiction novel. Let me ask each of you, because I think we all have, this is a reread for all of us. Mm-hmm. What was it like the first time you read this book? Um, Jacob, why don't you start? Sure. So I first read this book in a course taught by Hazel Carby 15 years ago on race and gender and by implication to some extent sexuality in science fiction. I, I read it in the context of Samuel Delaney's novel from from I think six or seven years later, Trouble on Triton, uh, which similarly is a, a science fiction novel that's trying to, to grapple with the plasticity of gender. Um, and uh, at the time, I remember really fixating on those themes. But thinking back, I also really remembered it primarily as an adventure story. Um, the part that stuck with me are was the part that stuck me w- with me was th- those chapters near the end, a section of about a hundred pages, where Genli I and Estraven are wandering across the frozen expanse and trying to make their way back to Carhide. Um, but that's actually only about a third of the novel, and in fact, so much more of it deals with these uh, themes of palace intrigue, um, with the politics of is the word Shifgrethor. Uh, I don't know Schiff how we're Grether, I believe it Schiff-Grether, is Shifgrether uh, of Shifgrether of uh, that this sh- sort of shadow etiquette um, of uh, the people of Gethin, uh, and it, it is a fascinating work of social world building. And that's really what what I came away with from this time is the the anthropological eye that Le Guin brings to the work of science fictional invention. And how about you, Charlie Jane? Yeah, I mean, I think I first read it also about 15 years ago, and I read it in the process of reading a bunch of Le Guin's novels from that era. And I remember kind of it running together with The Dispossessed and a couple of other books in my mind as these sort of examinations of societies and um, the meetings of different cultures and the kind of the difficulty of creating a just society. And that was sort of what stuck in my mind from 15 years ago. Um, And when I reread it, you know, just now, I was really struck uh, anew by all of the cultural, uh, the cultural meetings and all of the conversations between different societies that happen in it. But I was struck much more profoundly this time by how much I hated the character of Genli Ai. 
<laughs> in some ways, you know, the worst person in this book. That's so funny. Which um, hadn't really struck me previously. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember being particularly, I, I can remember not warming to him that much. But, you know, for me, again, this was assigned to me when I was probably a freshman in like a rhetoric section or something like that. So it was completely new to me. And it, it blew my mind, which I think is what Le Guin intended to do. You know, she talked about how, you know, not only is it not a sort of straightforward action, you know, science fiction story with like this obvious antagonist or protagonist and, you know, moving along at a steady clip, but just this the weirdness of the 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 un of having to think about people without genders and mm. in particular i think um you know there was some controversy over why she choose chose to use the the masculine pronoun for um the cathenians and um and for me i think just as that young reader who this stuff was so new to me it was really powerful to have that that male pronoun be used in all of these ways that I, you know, I had not associated with that pronoun. It's like the book kind of keeps breaking that pronoun against itself over and over again. Yeah, there are moments where Le Guin will say something like, when he was pregnant. Yeah. Uh, and, right. and just the casualness of that gender play that she enacts at a grammatical level is uh, one of this book's subtlest, maybe most obvious, but still most striking accomplishments, I think. Yeah, for but me... I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Charlie. But I actually take the male pronoun, like especially reading it this time around, I, I took the male pronoun as, as part of uh, Genli I being a jerk that he imposes <laughs> that on everybody. And then he doesn't... And then he blames them for not being masculine enough. But we can talk about that more in a minute. I, I actually have a lot of thoughts about that. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a, there's a connection here to to uh, Ada Palmer's recent uh, award winning book, To Like the Lightning, uh, where the protagonist in a kind of post gendered society, uh, in, in I think the 25th century, is similarly caught up in retrograde like 20th century or 18th century even uh, notions of gender uh, and insists on gendering people in ways that they would never gender themselves, and it creates in that book uh, even more self consciously than here I think a, a really striking tension between the, the narrative uh, focal character uh, and the narrative more generally. I think that he's sort of meant to be the reader surrogate, like maybe the guy that she imagines being the kind of typical science fiction reader of that time. And so mm -hmm. she, you know, puts that person into this situation then confronts him over and over again with the limits of his understanding. I was really struck by how much this is the reverse of Ancillary Justice by uh, Anne Leckie, in which somebody visits, someone who doesn't really understand gender the way that we do, visits a society of people with different genders and just decides to use the female pronoun for all of them because that's just most convenient. And so everybody in Ancillary Justice is a she, even if that's not the gender that they would have chosen. And so it, it, this is kind of the flip side of that, where I feel like at one point in the book, Gen Lee I actually says that he just chooses to use the he, the, female, the male pronoun for everybody because it's the default. And he actually yeah. says that. Uh, the funny thing about that first reading, which just the experience of it was really one of the big, you know, 
mental explosions of my um of my early college years i i did not remember the arctic um you know trek at all where they're escaping hmm. from orgarain across this glacier and it's like this fabulous um shackleton expedition <laughs> thing that comes after all of this stuff where he's like i can't say this to them or he said this and so that means this and then all of a sudden it's like nowhere out in the snow and 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 our breath is freezing our nostrils shed and you know all of these things that she must have got from reading the the sort of expedition notes of of polar explorers but I had completely forgotten that part, and I enjoyed it so much this time mm-hmm. around. But apparently when I was 18 years old, it just was not that interesting to me. <laughs> part of what really comes through uh, as that section, that, that Arctic Trek section proceeds, is the degree to which a kind of tragic intimacy emerges between Genli and uh, Esraven. Um, this way in which they come to know one another – come to feel with and for one another in a way that is not sexual, that subverts uh, Genley's expectations about how friendships and connections are formed. Um, I, I guess, you know, it, it's possible to still come away from that not not thinking very much of Genley, but he certainly does go on a, a personal journey over the course of that, that very real journey uh, and become someone quite different by the end, I think. He definitely starts out mistrusting and a little bit despising Estrovin, and then by the end, it's there's just this feeling that if it weren't for his sense of duty, he would be flinging the gauntlet at the king of Carhide, for whom he blames, on whom he blames um, everything that Estrovin has endured um, on behalf of his his friend. Um, so now. Charlie Jane, you talked a little bit about how, with the second reading, you 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 had this different take on. You had a different. It sounds like your first reading was part of this whole sort of taking in all of Le Guin's many books in which she really used the genre to look at the sort of unchallenged assumptions about our own societies that we all have. Um, and that anthropologists desire to compare them and and find out what is constant and what is mutable in human nature um but but what else did you did you you know did you notice besides in this reread besides the fact that that you didn't like Genley too much <laughs> I mean just expanding on what I said about Genley I feel like his mistrust of uh Estraven is driven by uh his misogyny. And I yeah. think that uh, he decides to gender everybody as male. He decides to use the male pronoun for everybody. And then he's constantly observing that people are being too effeminate and acting too much like women. And he doesn't like that. And anytime anybody acts too much like a woman, he is kind of turned off and upset. And he just, I think he actually just really hates women and he's a misogynist. <laughs> and uh, so he brings this misogynistic filter to this planet where they don't have that concept of, of male and female and his misogyny makes him bad at his job um, yeah. because he goes into all these situations where his views of gender are coloring it and when people show what he considers to be excessively feminine approaches to a situation he just he won't trust them or listen to them 
I, you know, it really struck me this time around that uh, Estravan is trying his best to be straightforward with with Genli Ai. And yes, there's a cultural barrier to, to in the way of them understanding each other, but there's also just uh, Genli Ai is, is super prejudiced against him because of this idea that he's effeminate. Yeah. He, he he really is. And I think Le Guin had said, um, I mean, the other thing we should note about Genli is that he is dark skinned. Possibly he's what we would call a black man, but it's not really clear. Most of the people of Gethin seem to be pale skinned and and they're constantly remarking on on how dark his skin color is. And this is something that she did in many of her books, it was like her way of 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 kind of tricking her readers into to identifying with a character that they that was different from themselves, as, which is just based on or not different from themselves, but but because obviously many of the people who read science fiction are people of color. But um, but the the assumption that the protagonist is always white was something that she was constantly trying to undermine both in the Wizard of Earthsea, whose main character is um, has the coloring of a Pacific Islander, which makes sense because they live on an archipelago. And, um, and with Genli, you know, he's like the only person that we can sort of attach our traditional human gendered way of looking at things to. But he is different from the typical science fiction protagonist of the time. So she's even twisting that thing a little bit there. But um but yeah, he she said that she felt that um the people of the future that w- when this the action of this book takes place might have gotten past their racial biases before they would get past their gender biases. She felt like that was more fundamental to human nature than racial bias. I do wonder how much of that is about her own preoccupation with binaristic systems and and ways of understanding the world. And she was, you may know, either of you may know more about this than I do, but as I understand it, she was a pretty serious uh, Taoist. Yeah, Uh, she was. And and her her Taoism was at least partially in what we might call a sort of deconstructive mode in in the sense that, that Jacques Derrida would have laid out that term, where male and female, dark and light, uh, are always um, kind of imbricated in one another. They're, they're co-constituting one another. They're impossible without one another. But they're, they're, even if they uphold one another, their binaristic reality is still uh, significant. And, and her sense of the binarism of gender is something that seems like she really wanted to work through and question and, and challenge. But, that, but it is striking that she would still see it as something that would linger in a society. And in fact, that she kind of funny that she would imagine the ecumen as this this kind of quasi-civilization that uh, on the one hand is like post-racial, but on the other hand would still, you know, not have the foresight to to find someone who isn't a misogynist <laughs> to, send, right. to send to a planet with, uh, with these kind of uh, different gender constructs yeah. uh, than, than the rest of the, the planets they visited have. It's a little short-sighted. Up <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it's really remarkable that for someone who has basically accepted an assignment to go to this planet that as far as he's concerned has no women on it, he doesn't seem to miss women or sex, even though he seems to be pretty young. You know, right. it's odd that, you know, I would think, yeah. okay, what is he in his 20s or something? 
Uh, I don't know if we know. I think at one point. Yeah. It, 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 I think there's a point where he, when he kind of casually is like, oh, my parents have been dead for 100 years because of light travel, light, uh, faster yeah. than light travel, yeah. uh, where he um, he he does suggest that he's in his, his 20s or 30s. But I, I don't recall exactly. Yeah, it just uh, seems odd that 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 that's not <laughs> it's not even an issue for him um, that he's basically going to be celibate or or. You know, he doesn't seem to be attracted to men. He doesn't seem to be attracted to women. He just seems to be this sort of floating brain type character. He's a weird dude. Yeah, he really is. <laughs> um, Jacob, what was there anything that struck you with on rereading that you know you hadn't noticed before that really popped? You know, this, this is gonna, this is going to sound crazy, but the thing that I really noticed this time is and it's what a unbelievably marvelous writer. Ursula yeah. K. Le Guin was, um, and I'd been thinking about that a little, you know, because she she died quite recently, um, and so I've been rereading a lot of her work, um, and really, no one put a sentence together like her. But the moment that that really hit me it was it was on like the second page, um, and it's this paragraph. It's just three sentences long. I'll read it. This is not an example of her at her most elaborate. Uh, as a prose stylist, but it is so striking in terms of the way that she constructs the world of this book. I was in a parade. I walked just behind the gossowers and just before the king. It was raining. And that, these two brief declarative sentences, Mm -hmm. I was in a parade and it was raining, sandwich this sentence in which something very strange happens just behind the gossowers, this this figure of strangeness. She doesn't explain what a gossower is for, for several paragraphs. And just before the king, this recognizable thing, but still a thing that, that feels like it might come out of another time or another moment. Um, that, that play of strangeness uh, and, and sense or familiarity that she, she enacts at the sentence level throughout um, is so amazing. And I just the the level of craft that goes into sentences as simple as those three is, is just astonishing to me. Uh, and there are, of course, other beautiful, elaborate sentences as well. But um, just what a writer she is, is, is what I'm left with uh, above all else. I mean, that's definitely one of the challenges of writing a science fiction that's like this, that's about encountering a different culture, is that so much, you know, like the the, the names – how to pronounce the names, the different religions, the different foods, the different um, customs. This is a planet that's very cold. It's in the middle of an ice age. So there's a particular way that people live in Gethin that has to be explained. Like the amount of exposition is so – like it's a lot to weight down a book with. Did that level of exposition feel – like too much to either of you or, or or did it come naturally? I enjoyed it this time, but the first time I think most of it just kind of went over my head. Like I wasn't really able to take it all in. What about you, Charlie Jane? I mean, I just loved the richness of the world building in general and like the amount of thought that she puts into not just the politics, but the folklore and the kind of traditions of these people and how mm-hmm. their kind of deep history intersects what's going on now, which is often the hardest part of world building to make work. Uh, and it, she does it so deftly and, and effortlessly that it's it's really a joy to delve into all those little details that she puts in there. As a novelist, are there things about this book that, you know, you you really admire 
certain choices or touches mm. or twists that that you think, ah, oh, I should steal that <laughs> or, <laughs> oh, I wish I had thought of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm always trying to steal from Le Guin, honestly. Like, it's, it's you know, it's a pre- preoccupation. I think a lot of us are trying to steal from Le Guin, like, constantly. My next novel, which comes out in about a year, is very transparently an attempt to kind of try to copy or, or, or pay homage to some of the things that Le Guin does in this book and The Dispossessed. Um, it's, you know, just the, the, the complexity of the politics, the fact that she creates these two different... Uh, societies, each with their own complicated political system. And it doesn't feel like we spend, it doesn't feel like a lot of like modern epic fantasies where you would spend a hundred pages just sort of describing one meal and getting all of the kind of (laughs) actions and all of the kind of ideas of what's going on. She just kind of slips in all of these ideas. You understand immediately when you get to Orgarin that there are these different factions and that one of them is more kind of peaceful and trade oriented and the other is more nationalist and um you know aligned with the secret police and it's the amount of stuff that she packs in there is really deft it reminds me of graham green actually who's another writer uh who i admire tremendously for his ability to just convey really complicated political stuff and actually uh while i'm filibustering one thing that jumped out at me about this book (laughs) this time around was the kind of subtle thread that she weaves through it about nationalism and sort yeah. of the nature of nationalism and patriot patriotism and why you can't really be nationalistic without being a little bit paranoid and xenophobic and full of you know hatred of the other and uh, there's that wonderful passage which is just sort of dog-eared where you know estrovin says you know why would i hate orgarain you know uh, how does one hate a country or love one? I, I, lo- I, I know people, I know towns, farms, hills, and rivers and rocks. I know how the sun at sunset and all autumn falls on the side of a certain plowland in the hills. But what is the sense of giving a boundary to all that, of giving it a name and ceasing to love where the name ceases to apply? It's really beautiful. And it's actually yeah. super relevant right now when we're kind of an era where, where nationalism and xenophobia are making a huge comeback. So I really loved that in this book. Yeah, there's so much going on. I mean, one thing that she just kind of drops as an aside towards the end is that because there are no sort of major mammals on this planet besides the human race, they have no pets. Like they have no like relationship to the animal world, like the one that we have on Earth. And that just set me thinking, what's it like to grow up in a, you know, in a world where, you, you know, really there aren't any animals? I mean, there's, there's fish, there, there aren't birds. That's one of the reasons why they didn't learn to create flying machines, although they have some sort of basic automobiles and, and, and similar um, vehicles. But, you know, the, even their angels, even the angels in their mythology just sort of drift like snow through the sky because they don't have the idea of flight from birds. And um, and I thought, oh, God, you could write a whole novel just about what it's like not to live in a world with that has never had animals in it, really. Yeah, so much of what's inventive about this book comes from comes out of her kind of thoughtful world building. There's uh, There are a few paragraphs, uh, again, late in the book, 
uh, I think as the Arctic journey, uh, I mean, I call it Arctic, but for the reason I'm about to describe, I don't think it would technically be called an Arctic region. Um, but as as their their journey across the snow and the ice is beginning, where she just sort of casually describes the uh, elliptic orbit of the planet and and the degree to which it is it it is or is not tilted on its axis and how that influences uh, seasons or the lack thereof around the globe, uh, how that's different from other planets, and it, it's this thing that she does really casually. Um, I'm not, you know, a, a planetary scientist or anything. I, don't, I have no idea if, if it is uh, accurate or, or makes sense. But it's it's a kind of casual version of science forward, hard science fiction uh, that nevertheless informs all of this very subtle, thoughtful thinking about how societies would form, how history would play out. Uh, in its own way, those, in their own way, those few paragraphs are. Uh, almost as determinate in the shape of the the world that she imagines here, Gethin or Winter, uh, as uh, the stuff around gender uh, and biology is. Mm, yeah, it's um it's so incredibly rich. And then I think she wrote a few other stories set in this in this on this planet, but but mm. but not I, a lot. I haven't read them. Yeah, yeah. um, I, I haven't either. But but she, she it's she didn't use it for another novel, I don't think. So that's um. So that's kind of like she just blew it all on this one um, amazing right. book. Um, yeah. I think for me, what really, which I, I, one of the other things that went completely over my head, in addition to the Arctic journey, which I guess just as a Southern Californian, I, I couldn't really picture, was, you know, as much as this is about encountering a society without real gender, it's also so much about the West's encounter with Asia. And it and it kind of comes out of that post war period where um where, you know, American companies were trying to do business with Japan and and there were like there was all these books about how the different sort of etiquette or or manner system or um honor system of these Asian countries that these American businessmen were going to have to learn how to how to how to negotiate with and socialize with and and how you should do you should, should never do this but you should always do this and and um and it really you know was her background obviously as the daughter of anthropologists um you know some of the most famous anthropologists of of the discipline that I think probably gave her this perspective but um it really is is fascinating how much of the sort of orientalism of of the west is is like is what generally is projecting onto the uh, Gathenians you know that there was the, there the all of the stereotypes of of Asians you know that they are not completely manly that they're engaged in these sort of subtle intricacies that you know that can cannot be fathomed that they're inscrutable that they have this face system that that you know you have to carefully navigate and if you go wrong you could offend somebody and and it's really striking how yeah how it, i you know i think that that is is a strong subtext in this novel that's such a good point and it speaks to the ways in which even as she imagines the ecumen as itself a presumably post-racial society, uh, that this is still in many ways a, a book 
uh, about racism in our own moment, which which may tie back to to some of what Charlie Jane was saying uh, a few minutes ago about questions of nationalism uh, and and the virulence thereof. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's something that really struck me as well. And, um, you know, I was an Asian studies major in college and spent a lot of time living in Asia. Um, and I remember hearing these kinds of conversations, especially among other Americans about, you know, oh, face and like, if you lose face or how do you, you know, gain face and like all these complicated, you know, and it's true, certainly that Japanese society has a lot of, uh, that they're that their customs and ways of communicating are, are different than ours and that it takes a lot of time to get used to. But that's also something that gets kind of turned into a mystique, I think, for Westerners. And there's a whole, especially there used to be a whole industry of, of turning that into a kind of ongoing mystique and sort of mystification. I also thought it was interesting that, you know, there's this sort of cliche uh, among white people, I guess, that, you know, Inuit people have like a hundred words for snow. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, she totally plays into that in this yeah. novel. We're yeah. constantly hearing about all the different words for snow. And I kept thinking, oh, wow, this was written during the era when everybody said, oh, they've got 100 words for snow. You know, and that was like a thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually found myself wondering if, if Le Guin had inadvertently invented that cliché. People had sort of oh. extrapolated back from her. So I don't think that she, she did. But I'm, no, I, I'm I sure think she was, was riffing thing. on that. Yeah. Uh, though that's certainly been true in, in other circumstances that, that – some some actually sort of clever things she would say would get twisted into just a a lame-o, uh, uh truism that is actually false uh, in other circumstances. She she writes about that a little in her essays, which are quite delightful. Let's talk a little bit about religion in this in this novel because mm-hmm. that it's one of the more I think sort of impenetrable aspects of it. But um, but the the Handara, which are sort of like Taoist or Buddhist, um, roughly, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's a very, very rough um, parallel. Um, that's the that's the religion of Carhide. And then Orgerain has the Yomesta. I'm, you can tell I'm <laughs> reading this from my notes, which is like a, a, a younger religion that has a prophet who... Who left the earlier religion and 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 this new religion is sort of organized around the revelations of this prophet, um, but you know it, Buddhism, not Buddhism, but Taoism really was such a an important thing to Le Guin. Um, you can see it in this novel, definitely in the Wizard of Earthsea, which is probably the most familiar that. This, that novel and, and the novels that came afterwards are probably the most familiar to the largest number of readers. Um, you know, the whole revelation of that book was that the villain was just a manifestation of the hero. Um, you know, do you do you see other ways, Charlie Jane, especially since you, you have spent so much time in Asia, do you, do you see other aspects of Left Hand of Darkness that that show that influence in in her life. I mean, her- um, I, I was certainly fascinated by the fortune telling ritual uh, that that uh, again the eye visits, you know, early on in the book, uh, where you know he goes to visit this community of, of fortune tellers who um, you know will will ask a price and then get, tell you the answer to a question, which feels 
very much like the Greek oracle, but also very much like um, the ways in which you can visit a temple in Asia and uh, get your fortune told, you know, which often involves a lot of complicated processes. Like you have a thing, a bundle of sticks and one of you shake them until one of the sticks is longer and then you get a poem and the poem kind of gives you the answer to your question. Yeah. It's like, it's a whole complicated, um, I mean, I've, I've witnessed it. I haven't really done it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I found that really fascinating. I think that, you know, I mean, the idea of you and your shadow, which is what Shif Grithor is, yeah. uh, is sort of, I mean, I was reading up on this last night because I was curious to see what people have said about it. There's, it is sort of a Taoist idea of like light and shadow being one and uh, that, you know, the Cathenians are obsessed with, you know, not having that dualism of light and shadow of kind of bringing them together. Uh, which is something that's challenging for for humans to or people from Earth to to understand, or at least for 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 Genli. <laughs> yeah, at least for Genli. Yeah. Well, he does show he does draw the yin and yang symbol, so he he's sort of aware of it. But it just takes him forever. It just takes it so long for it to get through his head that it, it's yeah. Really... <laughs> I, mean, you I, know. I understand your impatience, but I do think that he's supposed to be like the the average, you know avatar of the average reader it's just that the average reader has like surpassed him by by so much by now that he seems kind of backwards i was just struck this time by how often he uses effeminate as like a as an insult he you know it's one of his favorite things to call people that he doesn't yeah. like yeah and he at one point he said i can't even remember what he was what he was making this observation but you know he he said something like and this makes the gathinians like animals are like women <laughs> But then right. he says, unlike, you know, the people of my, unlike men or ants, which was another weird, weird analogy. Like if you think of women, animals are women, you know, and then men are ants. <laughs> I, I, I remember just pausing at that point and going, I wonder what he's trying to get at there, you know, because it first seems like <laughs> an insult to women, but then maybe it's better to be like animals than ants. It's hard to say. It is strange reading science fiction of this era of the 60s and of the 70s by writers that were generally um, progressive, thoughtful, often even radical, um, like Le Guin, uh, like Samuel R. Delaney, whose uh, Trouble on Triton I mentioned earlier, maybe even like uh, Joanna Russ, um, whose book The The Female Man um, also uh, plays with gender and its instability in, in interesting ways. Uh, there is still in many of these texts a, a tendency to essentialize certain gendered qualities that sometimes seems to be coming from the characters and sometimes does seem to be coming from from the writers themselves. And it, it does make, in our own moment, it, it often makes these once progressive texts feel here and there like artifacts of an alien culture almost, yeah. um, albeit one that we recognize more than we might uh, the societies of the Cathenians. I was struck anew by how much, how, how essentializing this text is in terms of, you know, kind of conflating sex and gender and the idea that, you know, they are defined by this, their, their sexuality in a way that, you know, most of us would not really want to be defined by our sexuality in, in the 21st century. That it's, it, it is a little bit like trying to kind of pin people down based on, their role in sex and reproduction and in um, in this this sort of uh, the idea that they're that they're that they're def- I mean it gets comes back to how they're sort of male unless they sort of become female for brief periods uh, at least as Jenly sees them so 
Yeah, it is. It is very essentializing. It, his big breakthrough comes when he's out on the ice with Estrovin and he looks at Estrovin and it's like the moment where they're the closest and he sees and accepts the the woman in him. Um, you know, he he sees them as as male because that's the only kind of person that he feels able to deal with, you know, who's like a responsible, rational person that he can deal with. So so if these are the people that he needs to negotiate with or to talk with about the ecumen, he's going to decide that they're male. <laughs> but, uh, but, but they don't see themselves that way, obviously. And it's only when he's able to actually see who Estrovan is that he that the final barrier between them is is broken down. Um, and it's all within him. I think I have that passage here, if, if that's yeah, helpful. Re- please. And I saw then again, and for good, what I had always been afraid to see and had pretended not to see in him, that he was a woman as well as a man. Any need to explain the sources of that fear vanished with the fear. What I was left with was, at last, acceptance of him as he was. Until then... I had rejected him, refused him his own reality. There's a real kind of knotted and precise quality to the way that those sentences are constantly turning back on one another, uh, a way in which at that moment, I think, as never before, generally is reconsidering his own sense of himself based on his ability to see the other in – its otherness um, that I, I don't quite know what to do with, but but it it, it it's a compelling achievement from Le Guin that that she makes that confusion and revelation play out as one at, at the level of her own language. I think it seems very much to be what, as a feminist woman, you would want. A man, how you would want a man to be able to see you, you know, as a person who was also a woman, not as a person whose womanness is irrelevant, you know, but as, as, you know, in in the richness of your identity, and um, and that's kind of what hit me then. It was such a pure expression of that desire of the person who has who has been made to feel like, well, I can sort of see you as a person as long as I just don't think about this one aspect of you, you know, which is the classic thing with like the person who's racist, but has one black friend. It's like, you're not like all the other black people or whatever. Um, And it is telling too that, that generally goes immediately from that revelation to thinking like, okay, but like, what if we fucked? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And like, even if it's just to to negate it, this, this phrase is also quite striking for us to meet sexually would be us for, for us to meet once more as aliens. Um, he's saying, like, okay, we're, we're not going to do it. But, like, but you can tell he's kind of going, like, <laughs> well, what, if, what if we did? Like, I mean, do you, know, you like think you, you, you <laughs> it is this thing that you're thinking the whole time? Because you know Yeah, that, like, are they going to fuck? Yeah, this novel <laughs> right. is going to be. And I had actually remembered them as yeah. Yeah, hooking up, yeah. you know? Me too. I, was, yeah. I thought that they had sex. I was kind of surprised that they didn't. I was, yeah. I was even talking to my friend about it the other day, and it was like, yeah, they have sex, don't they? And it's like, actually, no. And it was like, really? Because we all remembered them having had sex. Isn't that but, you know, weird? 
it is weird. But I have to just point out that like just 10 pages before that beautiful moment where he finally does see Estravan as, as, as male as well as, as female as well as male, um, there's that whole passage where he's explaining to Estravan about women and explaining mm -hmm. that women, <laughs> it's, you know, that uh, your gender in most societies determines your every aspect of your life and that, you know, women do most of the child rearing and that they don't tend, tend to become mathematicians or composers of music or inventors of abstract thinkers, but it isn't, they're stupid, he says. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, has to like, yeah. no, 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 it's not, I don't think they're stupid. It's just that they're not willing, they're not able to do anything that requires abstract thought. Um, and that's like 10 pages before that moment. So it's not like he suddenly I, I, becomes... You know, I, I I did find myself thinking about I mean, because, of course, you know, Le Guin, besides herself being a, a, a tremendous abstract thinker, uh, you know, had a, a mother who was an accomplished anthropologist, um, uh, you know, knew many great and accomplished women. I mean, I don't think that we are meant to take this as her own thinking, but rather as an extrapolation out from the way that she sees our society thinking there. The, there are moments where uh, – I, I wondered whether she'd been reading um, uh, Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex uh, while thinking about this book uh, or, or if she was thinking about them in relation to one another because so much of it, including, uh, of all things, some of Estravin's reflections on what it means to have your genitals outside of you uh, and what advantages or disadvantages that might bring uh, seem strikingly resonant with that kind of mid-century uh, feminist theory uh, that, that she might have been processing in this moment. I know I keep going back to this, but I but I think that she was a novelist who was just acutely sensitive to her to her audience, and um, up until the end of her life, she felt very stigmatized as a genre writer. Even though, mm -hmm. even as she was more and more honored um, and her her genius more and more recognized, she never really lost the sense of. Um, being kind of an outsider because of the genre she chose to write in. And also she had had early life experiences writing, um, you know, more traditional literary fiction and having that not work. And then, you know, she, in a way, as a woman science fiction writer in that time period, she was explaining something alien to a predominantly, you know, male community. And so, you know, I, I, I just consistently see him like the whole thing about the abstract thinking. Like at one point, I remember I read an interview with her where she sort of, you know, described like the classic reader of science fiction as being, you know, white male and probably an engineer. And, and, and that, that, that was who she was speaking to. So she created this guy and then mm -hmm. she basically broke him down, <laughs> you know? Um, right. Uh, you know, to the point where he was finally forced to acknowledge that someone could be a woman and a full human being at the same time. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 you know, she just, it was just such a constant uphill battle for her, I think. She, mm -hmm. you know, um, but this novel was really celebrated and, and, um, people recognized its, its genius early on. One thing that I also found, and this is kind of a weird side issue, but I, I just remember this from my childhood, you know, going to used bookstores and finding all of these old paperbacks, science fiction and fantasy novels from the 60s. 
um, you know, the obsession with telepathy is so feels so much of that time. Oh and, yeah, and I don't I. I don't know what that is. And I was wondering, Charlie Jane, if you had any thoughts on that, because you probably know the genre as well as any of us. Like why that would be a particular obsession during the 60s and 70s. I mean, it was the era of ESP. It was the era of, you know, all of these mentalists and, you know, spoon benders and, you know, all of that (laughs) stuff. Um, And yeah, it's funny reading this book now. The the stuff about mind speech telepathy just feels kind of extraneous, and it feels like it's just kind of added in as like an extra cool thing to have in the book. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it comes out of the narrative at all, and Gen, it doesn't. Genley seems like a completely regular person who's not particularly enlightened in most ways, <laughs> except that he has telepathic powers. And it's, kind of weird. it's the era of Stranger in a Strange Land, which I think has all sorts of trippy mental stuff too. Yeah. I, I do think it serves a narrative function here though, which is that it, it maybe too easily allows her to map the building emotional connection between uh, Genly and Estrovin as they're out on the ice and, and the snow and sledging their way across the right. land. Um, the, the fact that uh, in this mind speech and for the listener at home, we are the three of us doing doing mind speech here <laughs> and we're having a completely separate conversation <laughs> that you are not party to. Uh, from three uh, different cities, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but it, it, you know, the fact that when they first make that connection that um, he mishears the mind voice or whatever you would call it uh, of Jen Lee as the voice of his, his dead uh, sibling oh, Therum, yeah. Um, yeah. is it's a cool moment. Um, and I won't say it's not earned, but because it, it, but it, it, it makes their budding intimacy uh, that much more materially real, even if it's this immaterial thing. I, I think it's, it's a sort of science fiction way to, um, help us see that they have have bridged their, some of their their differences, even if they're not all the way there yet. And right, I guess right. I guess telepathy at that time had a kind of scientific veneer on it. Like you know, I can remember feeling vaguely as like a teenager that it was sort of being tested or proven or something. Right. You know, like it had a kind of it was in, on a kind of threshold between. Um, you know, fantasy or legend and science and, um, and, and obviously a really cool thing. But I just, I can remember my, my second grade teacher wrote, um, science fiction novels that all involved telepathy. And, um, she was really into Andre Norton, who wrote all these novels that had telepathy in them. And, um, and I, it's just seemed and it feels so weirdly dated now. I mean, I guess what's what's even what's weirder about it is just that it's not a preoccupation of the present at all of science fiction now. I mean, maybe you would get science fiction about people being able to go into other people's dreams, but the telepathy um motif seems to have completely fizzled out. I wonder if that's at least partially because our own uh, ability to communicate with one another across distances is now so much more varied. Um, 
so much more immediate and so much more intense. That when we can in an era when we can video chat with one another or something like the all the the kind of things that make the communication uh, done via the the Ansible, this intergalactic communications device that that Jen Lee uses, uh, make that apart from its magical qualities seem kind of primitive. Um, maybe telepathy no longer feels as urgent to us in 2018 as it did mm. uh, 50 some years ago uh, to, to science fiction writers and readers. What do you think Le Guin's legacy has been in the genre? I mean, she has a larger mm. literary legacy, but in particular in the genre, how, you know, you went through this period of reading all of her work. How did she influence you? What in particular uh, you know, that you do or that other people, other writers are doing. How was that shaped by by what she did? I mean, to me, what I think of as like her impact on the field overall is this attention to the complexities of societies and the meetings of different cultures and also the moral complexity of people kind of navigating these complicated situations and making terrible mistakes the way Genli does throughout this book and the way so many of her characters do. And um, she kind of took a genre that sometimes was prone to, you know, a little bit more of a Manichaean dualism or a little bit more of a kind of uh, a simpler approach to society in which the, the technology and the, the science were, were front and center, but the, the ideas of society and folklore and culture and history were kind of more in the backdrop. And she brought those things into the foreground and really made them, helped to make them uh, a key subject of science fiction, which they remain to mm-hmm. this day. Mm-hmm. And personally, what what's her influence been on you? I mean, I think it, again, some of that same stuff, uh, the fact that she's able to uh, create such complex societies and create, uh, characters who feel so vivid and real and are not instantly, you know, right about everything is something (laughs) that I I really struggle towards. And I, you know, I keep wanting to write more books in which there is that level of, of complexity and a feeling of a lived in society that didn't start existing five seconds before you open the page, um, that it has a, a deep history. Uh, it's really hard to do, especially without kind of being heavy handed. And nobody has really done it quite as well as she has, I think. Mm. When Le Guin died uh, a few weeks ago, I wrote a little essay for Slate about her way of understanding the future. Um, and it's one that I, I think squares with the way that she talks about what the future is to a science fiction writer, to her at least, in the introduction to my copy of Left Hand of Darkness, which is that it's about a kind of preoccupation with the present, um, with with what we are living now. Her approach to alienation, uh, and an approach that always passes through the familiar, as in one bit when she talks about, she has Jen Lee describe self wilting like a radish leaf. And Reading that, I thought, when was the last time I thought about a radish leaf? You know, I think <laughs> wow, I think yeah. about radishes all the time, but I don't think about radish leaves. And uh, that willingness to show us how strange our own moment is, our own world is, 
by creating these elaborate elsewheres and elsewhens is such a gift. Um, and even if the books don't always feel quite as urgent now as they may have 50 years ago, um, they still feel hugely important to me. She's just such a marvelous writer and thinker and creator. There was no one like her. I think we all feel this way. And so while the audiobook club traditionally winds up with a, you guys, is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Uh, I think. It's a a thumbs down for me. After everything I've said, I think this book is garbage. Don't read it. I think I can can speak for the whole panel in saying it's probably a thumbs up. But if anybody has it, it, wants to qualify that. Well, that's it for this month's episode of the audiobook club. Uh, Thank you, Jacob, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to talk to you both about this wonderful book. And thank you, Charlie Jane Anders, for joining us. It was absolutely my pleasure. I had a blast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Audiobook Club. If you like this show, check out El Gabfest and Español, Slate's first Spanish-language podcast. It's led by the award-winning Mexican journalist and broadcaster, Leon Krause. The hosts, all leading Latino journalists, discuss the news of the week in a no-holds-barred lucha libre. They focus on U.S. politics and current events, but they also take on international news as well as sports and culture. And for Slate Plus listeners, there's an English language segment so that non-Spanish speakers can hear at least some of the panelists' thoughts. Check out El Gabfest in Español every Thursday morning. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, which helps other people discover the show. This podcast was produced and edited by Benjamin Frisch. For Jacob Brogan and Charlie Jane Anders, I'm Laura Miller. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.